Hey everyone, welcome to a very special questions from the audience episode with none other than our latest steamy guest, Adrian Tan, aka the king of Singapore, aka the best-selling author of the Teenage Textbook and the Teenage Workbook, aka the president of Singapore's Law Society, partner at TSMP Law Corporation, and also a prolific LinkedIn writer. Now, several weeks ago, I announced on LinkedIn and Instagram that I was going to interview Adrian and I asked if any of you had questions for him. Turns out five of you did and some even had two questions. So here they are, questions from you directly, dear audience, and Adrian's response to the same. Special thanks to Aaron, Jeff, Chris, Jade, and Dave for submitting your questions and being a part of this very special Steamy episode. When I put out the post saying that I was interviewing you, there were a number of people who said, I have questions I want to ask Adrian. So the first is from Aaron. Hello, Adrian. This is Aaron from Malaysia. Big fan of yours on LinkedIn. I love the way you write. Very provocative and very funny. I have two questions for you. The first one is, how are you doing? How's the treatment been going for you? And the second question is, it's not every day that you get such a diagnosis from your doctors. So how are you processing mortality? The fact that the days ahead are probably less than the days that have been. Take care. Well, thanks, Aaron. I'm doing well. I am still full of energy and I still got all my brain cells. I'm still undergoing chemo. I think the idea of being sick is something that never occurred to me before. I think most people have to deal with it in their own way. Let's say you're a father or a mother and you have kids. I think that's quite a heavy burden if you're sick and you have responsibilities to other people. Right now, I'm still trying to work out the right way to think about being sick. And I suspect it'll take a while. And this is from Jeff. He's also got two questions. Hi, this is Jeff. I'm from the legal industry as well. When you were still serving your clients in court, what was the severity of your cancer situation? And do you find that it affected your performance? That's the first one. Oh, oh, thanks, Jeff. I'm lucky in that this cancer is not the sort that really interferes with the way I think or the way I talk. I probably won't be able to run and jump and do stuff like that. But fortunately for lawyers, we don't do a lot of running or jumping. The only thing, jumping at conclusions, I do that a lot. I think in court and to my clients, I'm the same person, except, except I have no hair. I still have issues with that. Doing this Zoom with you, Lingya, I see myself and I think, oh, I look very different. That's the one thing that I can't wait to return. That's my hair. It's the most immediate reminder of my illness. And it's also the main reason I had to announce that I was ill. For most people, when they have cancer, it's a private thing. You don't have to talk about it. But for me, there's two reasons I had to do it. Number one, I'm the president of the Law Society. And if I'm very ill and I can't attend functions and can't carry out my duties sometimes, I feel that I should tell the members. But the second thing is that if I lose all my hair, my members are going to guess anyway that I'm going through chemo. So for those reasons, I had to do it. But once my hair grows back... I honestly expected you to come with your many, many hats that you say you have a surplus of. I have a King of Singapore hat that somebody gave me. And I have a Make Lawyering Great Again hat. I get weird hats. These people know you well. 
So second question from Jeff. What and when was the tipping point that led you to change your life perspective to serve others? Oh, that's a great question. I think that I started to understand serving people after I started working. So if you're in this job, being a lawyer, you get to see sometimes people at their saddest times when they need help, when they're down on their luck, when they've been hurt or injured or betrayed, they've lost money, they've lost relationships. At that point, you can either deal with it as, oh, it's just a job. I'm going to do this task and do that task and I'll get paid. Or I'm going to try and make this person feel better. Once you start thinking the second way, then you're thinking about serving others. For me, being a lawyer reminds me of the time when my mom was going through a divorce. That was my first encounter with a lawyer. She had a lawyer that was helping her with her divorce. I was just a teenager. I spoke to the lawyer. I was very upset. I was very rude to the lawyer. I was trying to make the divorce happen quickly and finish and let us move on. Of course, I didn't have the vocabulary or the tools to express myself. And he was listening to me and he was very patient. He understood that I was just some kid that was upset because his parents were getting divorced. He could have just hung up on me because I'm not his client. He could have just cut me short, but he, he heard me out. And to me, that's service. That's when a human being is trying to help another human being. So I think if you're in this line of work, you get a lot of reminders that you can either choose to be a person who's paid to do tasks, or you can be a person who wants to make other people feel better. So we have our third guest, Chris. Hi, Adrian. My name is Chris. I think it's really amazing that you are still so active, doing so many things to serve the community while undergoing your treatment. I wish you all the best in your recovery. My question to you will be, my teenage son was in a debate club in your alumni ACS, thinks that he wants to become a lawyer. What advice can you give him to help him make a decision whether he should be a lawyer or not? Thank you. And she also lives in a HDB flat. Oh, well, I completely support your son to be a lawyer. And I think you should allow him to make that decision when the time comes. But the stuff he needs now, number one is he needs to read a lot. He needs to read not just textbooks, but he needs to read a lot of other kinds of books, whether novels or nonfiction. Why does he have to read a lot? Because he has to know human nature. He has to understand the different situations that people find themselves in. Number two, he needs to make a lot of friends or have a lot of acquaintances. In other words, he needs to be very sociable because the idea of being a lawyer and serving people, it only works if you have some basic people skills and that has to be acquired very early on. So how your son interacts with adults, with his peers, with people younger than him, that's crucial. And he needs to expose himself to all kinds of interaction, either by doing extracurricular activities, sports, or debating competitions, or just making lots of friends. Social media is one way as well. So the two things he needs to do, he needs to read a lot, and he needs to make lots of friends. So we have another guest, Jade. Hi, Adrian. This is Jade, a curious ex-business consultant still trying to find her footing in the society. My question is, what keeps you motivated and keeps you wanting to strive for more? In case being diagnosed with cancer is your answer, it is also one that can be a double-edged sword. Some people become stronger, while some just lose their drive quite entirely. Did you deal with it differently, and how did you do that? That's nice. Thanks, Jake. 
I suppose if you think about cancer as any other type of bad news, you can think of it as a thing which defines you. So if you have bad news, let's say the loss of a parent, a partner, or an illness, or some other misfortune, that's actually when you start to realize what matters. For me, when I was diagnosed, it quickly became clear to me what was important in my life and what's not important in my life. So I needed to be president. I needed to do my work for my clients. I needed to keep in touch with my friends and keep my relationships going. And everything else that I used to think about, money, possessions, some other accomplishments, nah, they just faded away because who cares? You know, really, if your life ends and you have millions of dollars, who cares? So I think once you get bad news like this, immediately you'll know what matters. Finally, we have Dave. He's a criminal lawyer and he's got two hefty legal questions for you. So I'll play the first one. Hi, Adrian. This is Dave Nader from Kuala Lumpur. I have two questions for you. First, about the death penalty for drug trafficking. A lot of criticism has been leveled against Malaysia and Singapore for the harsh stand that's taken in imposing the death penalty for those found guilty of drug trafficking. Now, the thing is, these critics come from countries that haven't themselves been able to control the drug problem there. So the issue I have here, however, is the finality of the death penalty. It offers no chance for the guilty, especially their drug mills, to make things right for their families and for society. I think a reformed convict can bring more awareness than just a mere poster pasted on a school wall. What are your views on this, Adrian? So that's that's a real tough one, Dave. I have to say that my views keep changing on the death penalty. I was more in favor of it, and then less in favor of it, and then more in favor of it, and then less in favor of it. And for the reasons that you mentioned, which is that it's the finality of the death penalty. If you take away someone's life, then how do you account for any miscarriage of justice, any mistakes? The answer is if your system is rigorous enough that you're fairly confident every avenue has been exhausted, that the person who is convicted is guilty of the crime, then yes, you can have your finality. The other aspect of it is the morality of taking someone's life. But against that, I have to tell you what other people who are in jail have told me, which is they don't want to spend the rest of their lives in jail. If they get life imprisonment, they feel that that is in a way more torturous, more cruel. If they live for another 50 years in prison, I think it would drive them nuts. There are also people who feel that they much rather just have their lives ended. I know it's quite a harsh thing to say, but whenever we talk about the death penalty, we have to talk about the alternative, which is life imprisonment. I would say it's very rare that the alternative to a death penalty is a fixed sentence and a person gets to be released back into society. We are usually offered only these two alternatives. So I think it's not easy at all to decide whether the death penalty is worse or life imprisonment. This is the second question. The second question I have is about the divide or disparity between Malaysia and Singapore. Now, do you feel that there's a cultural divide between our two countries? And if so, what do you think is the cause? I mean, at the end of the day, we are neighbours. Can't be an argument about food because, you know, that's a battle we won years ago. Sometimes, though, I think that there are uneasy things that are said or done in the media by politicians. But do you think that those things are actually truly reflective of how the people on both sides feel? Thanks for answering questions, Adrian. Lastly, just want to tell you that we are rooting for your health and recovery. We wish you the best, mate. We love reading your posts on LinkedIn. Take care. 
Thanks, Dave. Well, I'm very happy to tell you that Singaporeans and Malaysians, they are probably as close as any two nationalities can be to being friends. Let's put aside what the politicians say, because I mean, they're politicians, right? They'll have to say stuff for local consumption when the need arises. But the truth is that if you put a Singaporean into Malaysia or a Malaysian into Singapore, most of the time, they'll fit right in. And that's because we kind of have the same heritage, the same background. There are minor differences. I'm not even sure that they are very real differences or just cliches. I think Malaysians can think of Singaporeans as being a little too rude and a little too money-minded. Maybe we speak yep. very fast and we tend to make unflattering comparisons. But trust me, Dave, we do this to Malaysians. We also do this to ourselves. So it's not anything. As far as Singaporeans' impressions of Malaysians, is very favorable. I think there is no real negative stereotype of Malaysians here in Singapore. In fact, as I mentioned to Lingya earlier in this talk, many, many people are looking to Malaysia as a source of migration, as a source of future Singaporeans. I think as Singapore ages and if our population declines, we are probably going to start harvesting Malaysians as soon as possible. So we are probably looking at Malaysia as Singapore version 2. And that was the end of this special episode. If you haven't done so already, do check out Adrian's full interview at episode 101. It's divided into two parts and can be found at sodismawai.com forward slash 101. And don't forget to subscribe to the weekly steamy newsletter if you don't want to miss out on any of these announcements. And do stick around for this coming Sunday because having met Adrian firmly on this side of the law, we're going to the other side and meeting our very first ex-convict was a secret society member and owner of a very successful social escort business in Singapore. He shares his life story, how he ended up doing what he did, how he was caught, the realities of prison, how he talked himself out of depression and suicidal thoughts upon being released, and how he's currently reinventing himself. This is a very unusual episode, but one I think is very, very special indeed. Because not all world stories worth telling and learning from our Forbes billionaires. Stories like Nottle, the ex-convict, is very much worth telling to. So do subscribe, leave a review for this podcast, please, and see you next Sunday.